0: welcome to episode 10 of the Precision Microcast. Today Josh and I talk about the history of cemented carbide, a unique EDM solution from Switzerland, and our precision problems in the shop, as well as our new surface grinders. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. All right, on this week's history segment we're going to be talking about the history of cemented carbide. The very early cemented carbide was discovered in 1926 by a company called mm. the Frederick Krupp, which I think later became uh, Thyssen Krupp, correct?
1: That's right. And uh, our German listeners will kill us for the pronunciation of <laughs> all those things. Neither of us really speak German. So. Um oh Sorry. it's about to get worse don't worry uh, <laughs>
0: and so they they were driven into developing cemented carbide for a replacement for diamond wire guides in drawing tungsten wire for light bulbs and the company was uh the Diamond or Light diamond i guess it roughly translates to mm-hmm. and that company later got shortened into widia which still exists as a, a marketed name under the kinemetal family of products So I found that interesting. I have some Mm -hmm. Whittier cutters and taps rolling around here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, yeah, like a lot of the early carbide work, both by uh, Whittier and General Electric, was for developing uh, light bulb wire. And uh, so 1920s and 30s, uh, that's kind of what it was used for. And then, then eventually it was discovered how much better it will cut steel in machining applications. And right about the time that research started kicking off, World War II happened. And pretty much all companies and and countries involved in producing things for the World War uh, discovered that with a little bit of carbide, you could produce so much more machined parts than you could with a fair amount of high-speed steel. So Mm -hmm. from a raw resources perspective, it made significantly more sense to use carbide. Uh, And that was the case in Germany, and Japan also realized that, and that's kind of what drove them into developing a lot of ceramics and ceramics uh, for cutting. And these early tools were mainly for turning, and it was uh, just a piece of cemented carbide brazed onto a steel shank, and then it could be formed by freehand grinding into uh, the chip rake you'd like. There are still cases of that being made today. There's a company not far from me that specializes in brazed carbide tooling for manual lathes. Um and it's a bustling <laughs> little company and I I'm shocked every time I drive by that, that it's still open. But
1: uh yeah, that's <laughs> that still exists. The um the thing that always fascinated me with this sort of middle-level debe- development of tungsten carbide was um it was mainly focused on turning from what I can gather. Uh, milling cutters developing cutting geometry from something like solid carbide uh, it was a technical challenge um, even though the capability was still there because you could still make it from high-speed steel like something like an end mill uh, but it was much easier to braze and then grind carbide so you ended up with larger cutters um and often in not in really in metal cutting industry something like a like a wood saw with with brazed carbide tips is something we could probably relate to more um easily as as a common application for carbide Uh, i think the development of an end mill is something that we relate to really easily now but it's a lot of technology and a lot of thought and a lot of um, development went into making something from solid carbide like that, as opposed to brazing tips.
0: Well, and back then, not a lot of metal was moved via milling. If you needed a large flat surface or a slot, uh, you might look at a shaper prior to a mill. So that, that probably held back some of the milling development as well.
1: And we really quickly realized that um, putting a coating on carbide is... Uh, very beneficial so you see uh, that increasing hardness of the coating and especially because a lot of the time you can't make the whole tool from the coating um, you could gain the benefits of the hardness of the coating without sacrificing on price really and you found that the carbide substrate that you coat also gives the mechanical properties that that are really beneficial in cutting tools which is the rigidity and the ease of manufacture so you could easily make something from carbide because it holds its form really well and then coat it with something really hard and still gain the fact that it's rigid
0: one of the next developmental steps after coating was grain size i think that's still something they strive to refine to this day what was considered fine grain a decade ago was you know now more or less coarse so in the 90s half to three microns was fine in modern day were 20 to 50 nanometers getting the grain size smaller and smaller has really been the giant push and that can help with everything from edge sharpness to certain characteristics uh, how it holds up in the cut and rigidity and so that's been a, an interesting thing to watch develop even in stamping dyes mm. um, in stamping dyes it's it's very curious how many of the variables you get to play with when you spec out carbide compared to like a cutting tool cutting tool you're not even really aware what carbide it is it's just you know your end mill you got it from the guy um (laughs) and you know what you're doing in stamping whether it's drawing or coining or or punching or shearing you're going to use vastly different types of carbide grain sizes when and different binders and binder contents Mm -hmm. and uh That's something I've been really enjoying getting to talk to some professionals with at carbide companies and learning more about that.
1: What I find um, that sort of overlaps in my industry is uh, that the grain size has a big impact on the quality of micro tools. So the smaller you go in a lot of carbide tooling. So let's say we're talking about very fine drills or uh, very small end mills under the sort of half millimeter size, the grain size has a very large impact on how long that tool will last. And from my understanding, and I'm not an expert in these things, and I don't pretend to be, but the grain size has a direct correlation in how sharp you can get the edge of the cutting tool. And Correct. with your very small tools, the sharper your cutting edge, um, well, firstly, the... the, the The radius permissible by the actual material um, that you're generating onto the cutting edge uh, has a greater impact the smaller you go in terms of diameter. So what I'm trying to say is that um, if you've got like a three micron radius on a cutting edge um, or even a two micron or one micron cutting edge, that doesn't doesn't actually impact a 10 millimeter cutter as much as it would a 0.3 millimeter cutter. So it seems obvious, but when you start running something like a 0.5 millimeter end mill and you try to maximize tool life, the sharpness that you get from the box has a direct and measurable correlation um, to to those beneficial properties. On a slightly related but slightly unrelated note, um, I was talking to Marv, who is a material scientist, uh, but he works at Kern as uh, a jack of all trades. I think he's mainly in the marketing department from what I understand. Um, yeah,
0: yeah. He's, <laughs> he's their Instagram influencer.
1: I think he's, I think he's the paid Instagram influencer. Um, but we were talking about some of the uh, properties of cutting tools and why they work. And he posted some incredible uh, stuff on his personal Instagram, but also on the Kern Instagram about ductile cutting modes. And he... Um, it specifically in ceramic but it's i guess applicable in a generalization to other materials and uh, long story short cutting tools work and this is all information from Marv, so the hate mail can go to him but uh, in general cutting tools work because they are harder than the material that they're cutting and if we look at um, the Vickers hardness of the cutter versus the material that's being cut um, you achieve a Better results, and you enter into what's called ductile cutting mode, where the chip is flowing rather than cracking. Uh, when the Vickers hardness is something around four to five times, let's say, um, harder in com- in comparison to the cutting tool to the material being cut. So, the analogy that Marv gave that was really really cool was that high speed steel will cut hardened steel sort of once and maybe twice uh, and then it really won't and then you've lost your cutting edge and the tool will fracture or cut or you know deflagrate if you're if you're really unlucky but uh, when you cut hardened steel with carbide it's a much more effective uh, operation and that's because the chip that you're creating is flowing rather than cracking along the cutting path um, you can almost imagine it like uh, a, a, a knife in butter creates a, a flowing um, chip, whereas if you tried to uh, sort of split a porcelain plate, you'd develop a crack. So the development of carbide gave capability as well as the economic realization of you know generalized industry. So we could start cutting hardened steels but we could also do it much much more effectively from an economic standpoint that's what i found interesting in um in the development of carbide
0: all right Alright, for episode 10's machine segment, we are going to be talking about Cerex EDM. So you've heard of wire EDM, and you've heard of RAM EDM, so this is considered micro EDM or milling EDM. And basically, it's uh, kind of like a RAM EDM in the fact that it has a small tube of uh, electrode, but it's uh, not just going straight down, like a RAM EDM often would. It's uh, using that like an end mill and following a 3D cam generated program and uh, milling around via EDM. And it's pretty interesting technology that we'll get into. Uh, Josh, these are pretty common in the watch field more so than any other sector. Uh, Do you have any experience with them or have you seen them in production?
1: I've never seen one being used. Uh, I've only seen one for sale at a machinery dealer. Um, it was their older generation before the one that's advertised on their website. And it was a desktop model. And uh, from what I understand, they're very popular because of their compact size. So a lot of um, watch ateliers or workshops are quite small and space is you know, a huge concern. So I think when they made this machine, um, that was one of their big marketing points that you could fit it all in one desk and you could have one operator sort of working at it almost like a computer more than a machine
0: that's certainly what caught my eye um this is a, a very small c-frame kinematic frame and then it has some you know electric generator and a tank and it all fits on a, maybe a meter and a half long table
1: um, that's pretty that's right
0: pretty pace, uh, space compact
1: that's right and to be clear as well if you go on their website they actually make very large machines as well Um, with Mm -hmm. larger travels and different functionality. But I think they started off, and their main sort of product is this small um, desktop model.
0: So to me, what's really powerful about these machines, and I'm surprised I don't see them more in the tool world, is when you get into micro work, you find you have a a large inventory of very small increments of tools. You might have end mills going up in 0.1 millimeter diameters, All of a sudden you have a lot of expense in cutting tools just, you know, sitting in inventory. Because some of these tools, when you buy them, you have to buy a five-pack. So you might need two or three for a project. You end up with... So just cutting tool inventory becomes a real concern when you're doing small diameter milling. What's so cool about this machine is you load a standard diameter electrode in, and then it will dress it to whatever size it needs for the project in diameter. So it uses, it looks kind of like a a wire spark generator, like on a wire EDM, and it's dressing with that wire, and it'll turn the electrode down to the tool diameter it needs to either drill the hole or mill the feature. Just a a few handfuls of electrodes, you can can approach any project and be properly tooled for it, and I, I think that would be a great thing in terms of reacting quickly to new projects.
1: One big thing with any EDM application is uh, controlling and defining the spark. So your electrode uh, is obviously a nominal size or a size, but uh, the spark can also influence the um, the final form of the material of the of the thing that you're cutting. So you actually have two ways of offsetting your uh, your part geometry, and one is obviously with dressing the electrode and getting it to this rough size but then with these spark generators especially these modern spark generators you can influence the power settings and give them a little bit more current or a higher voltage depending on the material and shave off micron very very easily and uh, what what's fascinating about that to me is uh, you can with a proper you know zero clamping system is that you can erode out a form, take it to your measuring device, measure how much you need to uh, uh, offset, bring it back to your machine, and then just offset in really, really small increments. We're talking about like less than five micron, and just take another final pass uh, just by altering your power settings. So that's something that's very difficult to do in a standard milling process. Uh, you can risk rubbing the cutter. You can um, risk uh, damaging your floor finish or something like that as well. Uh, but with an EDM process, it's very controllable.
0: Now, I, I would like to add these. The frames look very light duty. It almost looks like a you know a hobby C-frame mill with a lot of fancy electronics on it. That kind of caught my eye at first as not being a good thing. But reality is, it, it doesn't need to be at all stiff. There's zero cutting force with this type of work. It's appropriate for the task at hand. It it does kind of make you laugh. Um, It definitely reminds you of a Far East hobby built machine tool.
1: One thing that I always find fascinating with these like very expensive industrial solutions um, that are desktop size is they often have to succumb to, I guess, packaging issues. And one that stands out like a sore thumb is the coolant or waterproof guarding of the machine. And it almost just, I mean, it is, it's not almost, but it is just a bunch of plexiglass that covers these um, tables to prevent splashing of coolant. And that looks really cheap to me, but at the same time, it is just only sort of solution that you can if you had to build a whole enclosure around the machine i bet the price would increase but also you wouldn't end up with a desktop size machine you'd end up with something much much larger
0: yeah and i had that uh, realization when i was grinder shopping looking at total machine enclosures versus just some table guarding the amount of space it sucks up in the room it's the same machine but it has an enclosure around the entire table versus just a little one around the magnet really really changes how big the machine feels in a small room and so yeah that's a that's a good point uh regarding the the small cheap enclosure but i i can't imagine this is a cheap machine and that's about ten dollars worth of plexiglass
1: um one thing i found interesting um and you can see this in the documents uh attached to if you go into their website attached to their milling erosion application Um, So just to uh, guide you guys, if you go onto their 3D micro EDM milling um, part of their website, there's a bunch of uh, PDFs that you can look at, uh, like a flyer. Anyway, uh, in one of their flyers, there is a sample cut that they've done of two stacked gears. Um, And this, I found really interesting because it is a very typical application that you find for plastic injection molding for ultra high volume production of, um, of very cheap watches. So a lot of quartz watches and a lot of um, uh, economy grade mechanical watches use plastic gears. And one really good way of making millions and millions and millions of gears like this is to plastic injection mold them. But the problem is making the molds is a massive technical challenge. They have to be very accurate and often, especially with this stacked gear um uh, the geometry required is is uh demanding to say the least and this seems like the perfect way to make something like that mold because um a it's small and so the runtime you know would not be a significant difference between eroding it out and milling it out you'd have to use small cutters that would you know travel very slowly but also um you can make it in a really tough demanding material and not have to worry about tool breakage or surface finish issues because it'd be consistent. From a toolmaker's perspective,
0: this definitely is attractive to me, not only for, you know, like you said, tough materials, small diameter tools, but Occasionally, you you get into parts where you can't recut with an end mill because you're you're machining it like a Swiss lathe would turn a small diameter from a bigger bar. You're starting at the top and helically ramping down with your end mill and producing a very fine feature, and it has to be right because when you go to remachine it, it would just flex out of the way, um, and that's a really annoying scenario in tool making sometimes. And something like this would just completely remove that.
1: So what do you say, Adam? We go halves.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I find uh, that... Uh, it's a cute machine, but um, I don't know. This is, when it comes to unicorn machines, this is out there.
1: Yeah. I mean, it does always tickle my fancy to get the unicorn machine, but you have mm-hmm. to wonder, why is it a unicorn? Uh, there must yeah. be a reason why there's not thousands of these out there.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I can't imagine a service call from a small Swiss company uh, to to fix like a fried board or something is going to uh, be cheap. Also looks like a proprietary control and proprietary control in a foreign country uh, or a foreign company. That's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah.
1: So that was the Sarex um, 3D micro EDM machining machine. And uh, if you want more information, you can go to sarex.com and uh, read about their various machines and applications that's
0: s-a-r-i-x sarix
1: we often hear the
0: comment that people have no idea how to spell (laughs) what we're talking about and have trouble looking it up and that's fair a lot of a lot of weird names of companies
1: On this week's precision problem, we've got um, quite an interesting precision problem. We're just too busy, and you might have seen that because we haven't posted a uh, podcast in a little while, but both Adam and I have been crazy off the hook with new machines, and um, recently I got married uh, on the, the 29th of December, so right between Christmas and New Year, um, I got married to my best friend, Mary Ellen, and uh, we had a little, a bit of a stressful ceremony. We actually had to cancel our wedding two days beforehand because of a coronavirus outbreak. And so um, I'm sure that my my family loved that, but um, I can appreciate that you guys loved that even more because we haven't done a podcast in two or maybe even three months, partly due to that. So, Adam, what's been busy for you? Uh, I just usually January is kind of a slow time for us.
0: Um, But I was busy right through Christmas and New Year's. And then first of January, I got slammed with orders again. So um, I just haven't really had a time to not work. And uh, on top of all that, I'm having to expand the shop um, prep another area in our garage. And so now we're up to 400 square feet. So I've been drywalling that and, uh, you know, making preparations for a new machine over there. And so that's been burning up a fair bit of time.
1: A new machine.
0: Are you allowed to talk about that? Uh, yeah. Um, it's a CNC grinder, Parker Majestic. Um, essentially, the exact same grinder I have now, but with a Siemens 828 control on it. Um, And this is a full three-axis grinder. Uh, That is one of the things that drew me towards it. uh, You can can treat the reciprocal axis as like a programmable x-axis instead of uh, most grinders are like a 2 plus 1 arrangement where Mm -hmm. you have control of Z and Y, but uh, the reciprocal axis
1: just goes back and forth. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. I've sort of followed your journey with um with your selection of what you might end up with and i was really happy that you weren't uh u.s made
0: i feel a little bad for you uh i think i soundboarded my my various decision dilemmas
1: on you for a little bit there probably the worst Um, person to soundboard off i know nothing about grinders
0: (laughs) well that's why i picked you
1: so what uh, ended up drawing you to the to the, um, Uh
0: Of the four machines I looked at, it was by far the most versatile uh, in terms of workpiece head height, uh, but also it played well with my existing operation. I have a lot of Sopco wheel hubs for that spindle taper, and so that investment I've made will work on this new machine as well as my old one. And that's... That's pretty interesting to me because I could do stuff like dress a form wheel on the CNC grinder and transfer mm. it over to the manual grinder and, you know, form parts that yeah. way if I need. Yeah. Not saying I would, but um, just that kind of familiarity between two machines, um, that kind of drew me in. And, uh, you know, they're, it's the only grinder I looked at that I felt was built for and by toolmakers. Mm-hmm. Um, the other grinders do exceptionally good jobs at a few things. Uh, whereas the Parker does a pretty good job at just about all the things they'll need it to do. Wow. And I think it also has the most comprehensive system for handling spin grinding. Um, if you put a motorized spin fixture on it, 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 It does very good work with that and it's been integrated into the control very well there's a 110 outlet on the back which um i think it's based on the work coordinate system like when you call g55 Mm. it'll apply power to the motor wow so you don't necessarily have like speed control over the motor but the control can turn it on and off with the start and stop of the program which Mm -hmm. is good
1: and so are you open to talking about the other options that you had lined up um,
0: yeah, I mean, we can go through them a little bit, um, four machines I was looking at, um, two of them were from Okamoto, so the, the cheapest one was the Okamoto 818 NC, and that's kind of like their entry-level NC machine, and, uh, you know, I, I really liked it for the flat and parallel work I would need to be doing, um, I think thought it wasn't quite going to cut the mustard for some of the form grinding and high accuracy slot work I needed to do and then on top of that if you wanted to do any kind of rotary grinding uh, you needed to upgrade to a table screw instead of a hydraulic and so at this point it kind of pushed the price up into a less attractive range and it gave me a less attractive table drive option Um, you know, the screw, I've always heard that they cause a little more mechanical noise in your finish than hydraulic or tape. And so I really wanted to avoid screw tables if I could. Um, I really wanted to dro- avoid hydraulic as well. My, my ideal grinder would have had a tape drive. So I also looked at an Amada Texter 52 S. And Amada makes some very incredible grinding machines. I would say of the three brands I looked at, they're probably the most substantial casting and the beefiest column, but you give up a lot of head height. It's somewhere around half of what the Parker has for Y-axis travel. And I had quite a few parts this last two, three weeks that simply I could not grind in that machine. But beautiful machine. Um, They seem to really, really set the guarding up on it well. It's all stainless steel. But my one concern is it is a hydraulic machine. And if I was comparing the two hydraulic machines, it uh, it didn't provide enough over the hydraulic Okamoto to woo me. Um, and I really didn't want a hydraulic machine. So, And then the third option was a new model from Okamoto, which is the HPG 500. And I would say of the four machines, this is probably the most well-engineered. A lot of attention went into the thermal characteristics of the frame and casting uh, and how they mounted the motor. It's thermally symmetric, so it doesn't shift the uh, elevation height of the motor spindle, and I thought that was pretty good. Um, Very large class bearing on the spindle. Very, very, very stiff spindle. Overall, I just really liked that machine, but what kind of turned me off of it is it was near the same price point as the Parker, but way less capable control. And um, so ultimately what drove me to the Parker was the control and the versatility of both the control and the machine
1: frame. So run us through the kinematics and the, uh, the drives of the Parker. It's ball screw with Heidenhain scales on Z and Y.
0: And then the um, reciprocal axis is a tape drive. With a servo driving the tape drive, and the uh, repeatability on the reciprocal axis is actually somewhere in the neighborhood of a tenth, um, so still quite accurate, and which is very important for stop grinding, which is where you're doing you're following like a 2D contour, but you're not going completely through the part. You're stopping and then allowing the radius of the wheel to form like a ramp, which is quite common in die punches. Um, and so I thought it was set up to handle that very, very well. And, uh, so it is six inches in Z stroke, 18 in reciprocal, and you can get anywhere between 16 to 18 inches of part between the magnet and the wheel. It just really kind of depends on how wore down your wheel is, No. Hmm. And uh, it comes equipped with three-point dresser system, which is pretty standard. All the machines came that way. But because of the way they have the the options for rotary work on it, you could easily put a motorized spin dresser on there if you wanted to. I didn't pull the trigger on that. I, I, I'm i pretty content with the wheel choices I've made to just stick with uh, diamond dressers for the time being. Did you have anything in the workshop you wanted to talk about? or Yeah,
1: uh, I got... A grinder as well um seed tech yeah <laughs> seed tech i've never heard so of that project brand, but
0: i looking <laughs> at it they don't they don't market them in the u.s uh, but looking at it it looks like a pretty nice machine
1: yeah it was um it's it's made in taiwan and um i probably should give some context to the whole project of why we got a grinder because um that might inform as to why we chose that particular machine originally it was a sort of passion project, um, on the side, uh, machine that I would either, you know, do the classic attempt to restore and sit in the machine bay for six to 36 months and not make any parts on, um, buy something really cheap and, you know, not feel guilty about it rusting away. Uh, but it's slowly, the whole project slowly transformed and um, I ended up having some ideas of running our production parts through the, through the grinder, through the surface grinder. And um, I did a couple of tests. I did one test on our Shoblin where I was spin grinding. Um, it was really quite effective. We, um, what I did was I set up the milling attachment on the cross slide and put a grinding wheel in the milling attachment, and then put my work piece, obviously, in the main spindle, and uh, I ground in a flat face. And it wasn't actually quite flat because the the squareness of the cross slide was not that great to the spindle, so it generated a bit of a cone. But um, the concept transferred, which was that I could grind titanium quite well with... um, In this case, it was actually a CBN tool uh now let me let me pause you there for
0: a second was the was the desire to grind based on holding tolerance
1: or was it like a grind pattern you're going for finish wise so it's purely finish uh well actually that's not technically true but it, it was finish over tolerance um without giving too much away because i haven't truly run it through its paces so i don't want to speak out of order but um we end up lapping our titanium and timascus uh bridges which are sort of the most visible parts of the of the movement on the on the rear of the the watch and i spent a lot of time rough lapping which is more or less sanding if you you look at it objectively but i spent a lot of time rough lapping and the idea was if i could surface grind um semi-automatically that part of the lapping process, the final lapping, which is um, more of a chemical process, would go much quicker. And uh, the, the, the secondary of that idea was that I could probably create some patterns with a grind finish if I didn't want to go through to a mirror finish. And uh, that's where spin grinding sort of came in. And that, it's actually quite common in the watchmaking industry to do that sort of stuff. If you look at uh, what are called ratchet wheels from especially uh, German watchmakers from the Glashütte region, so you're talking about Langenzerne, Glashütte Original, uh, even like Moritz Grossmann and uh, NOMOS, if you look at their ratchet wheels, they have a uh, what everyone else would call a grind finish, Uh, but watchmakers call it snailing. And so Uh, That was very attractive because I could achieve better snailing or grind finishes with a surface grinder or a spin grinder or even on the Shoblin, although it's not quite ergonomic, than you would achieve classically with classic watchmaking finishes. So we sort of had two of these um, uh, wishes once, which were finish and pattern, and then tolerance sort of came in right at the very end but um i quickly realized that you sort of if you want a good high precision workshop you need a grinder
0: (laughs) yeah the ability just to make things flat um like when you mill something very very nicely uh it's not uncommon to like then take it over the grinder and see oh no we we had a little bit of too much clamping pressure and there's you know a Mm. couple micron high spot where it swelled and um you know, the grinder reveals all of that for you. Um, Otherwise you're, you're thinking you're looking pretty good, but
1: Mm. no, it's, that's what I found with um, the precision ground flat stones. Often straight off the mill parts are usually distorted and the the stones reveal that. And more so the grinder does as well. So uh, that was sort of like a secondary thing. Um, But the more I've been using the grinder, I've been finding uses for it and uh, granted arbitrary uses, but I, I feel like if I was, it's, it's actually bizarre. If I was to pinpoint what I find most enjoyment in, in the workshop, it's actually making nice things. And uh, the grinder is definitely a pathway for that. So even though we don't have necessarily a, a business case for making nice things that aren't watches. Um, I definitely have like a a soul need for that. So woodworking is usually the classic outlet. You can make nice things fairly easily, but working with metal and making nice things is definitely, definitely a lot of fun.
0: I I don't know that I share your sentiment on woodworking. Uh, <laughs> I I, <laughs> I fall into the classic machinist attempts woodworking pitfalls of trying way too precisely to do the job when when you're not paying attention then to you know oh you're trying to cut this board super precise on length but it's not straight or you know or or when you come back into the workshop in the morning and it's more humid it'll be a different straight you know yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah um so yeah we we sort of had those ambitions with a grinder but The target moved a lot of the time, especially once we realized that we couldn't find a second-hand machine in Australia that wasn't completely clapped out. Um, Yeah, you showed me me some of your your finds.
0: Um, Pretty pretty rough. Not a lot of grinders ever got used in
1: Australia, from what I gather. There wasn't a huge tool industry. No, yeah, you're completely right. And what was the tool industry was all well not all but mainly automotive and it sort of petered out in the late 80s early 90s um our last car factory i think closed around 2009 um so we don't have a huge capital resource of secondhand grind it's just lying around and uh we found that out we looked at all these old jones and shipmans that Granted, are probably quite nice grinders, but in the condition they were left in, would not have produced nice parts. Um, or at least for what we were looking at, you know. And, and maybe they would have, but you never would have known if it was the machine's fault that the parts aren't nice or if it was your fault. What I needed was, as a beginner grinder, really, um, as in me, the grinder, the person that's grinding... Um, as a beginner, I needed a platform where I knew that uh, it was my level that was being tested, not the, the tools. So we um, kept looking around and there were a bunch of sort of Chinese and Taiwanese import machines that were um, being lauded around by these sales guys. They all claimed, you know, fantastic figures. Uh, and I never really believed any of them until I found SeedTech. And uh, talked with Paul from Benson Machines in Australia. Hit him up if you're in Australia. He's a great guy. Um, and he sort of was very honest. He said, you know, this machine is not the bee's knees when you compare it to um, all the other, you know, Japanese grinders. He's, he, coincidentally, actually, he's the service, um, not service, he's the um, sales rep for Nagasi, oh. Nagasi I So... And, um, that gave me a lot of confidence because he had a direct comparison.
0: That's a, those are two very different machines.
1: Yeah. Very different machines. And he, a lot of, a lot of people who were selling these Taiwanese machines tried to compare them to Okamoto and said, you know, we're just as good. We're just cheaper. Whereas, um, Paul was very upfront and he said, Okamoto is a step above, um, But this is exactly how much buy, you know, when you look at the kinematics of the machine, when you look at what comes with the machine, when you look at the accuracy that the machine was made to. And um, this is how much Okamoto is missing on Nagasi. And so I had that very honest appraisal and that actually sold me on the machine. So we ended up purchasing a bunch of other options. We went with, um, you know, filter it mist extraction and coolant system with a paper band filter um all with the idea that uh if we did put it into production this would run in a semi-automatic way the idea is to put an aroa chuck onto the machine so it would be a very easy quick change between pallets and yeah that's where we landed i've got a grinder in my shop finally the
0: The thing that impressed me, I looked at the literature when you'd uh, decided to purchase it, is they will guarantee a one micron downfeed increment. Uh, and a lot of times, when you get into grinders, um, you'll tell it to move down, you know, micron or forty millions of an inch, and it might do it. And then you tell it to do it again, and it might go. Micron and a quarter or, you know, a little bit shy and to get a consistent one micron movement down every single time um, Is is a little difficult Um, Now if you tell it to move a micron down over a centimeter, it'll move that centimeter pretty reliably But the individual steps will will have some variation to them And they seem pretty confident in their ability to get that thing to move and that variation doesn't necessarily come from the screw but rather the the ways sticking a little. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't drop the entire micron the first time. And then the second time it drops, you know, that amount it didn't before, plus the next, you know, the next micron. Um, and so the fact that they put that in writing, that it can do that, uh, speaks that they feel pretty confidently with their machine build.
1: Yeah. So that was actually in the contract. Um, in... In the literature as well. But I said, you know, let's put it to the test. And so when the machine came in, we put a um, LVDT probe against it. And it did. It really moved a micron. Okay, granted, the only sort of thing that uh, caught me off guard was that it moved a micron every single time. Um, Well, no, let me rephrase that. It moved the same amount every single time. But it was a micron and a quarter pretty much Uh, but at least I knew that it was a micron and a quarter every single time So, uh, and and what was the most impressive was when you reversed it uh, and you went up it moved a micron and a quarter the same way
0: I know a lot of old school grinders who would only ever move the head down via up like they would go far down and then come back up to the depth they wanted because you're driving the the head upwards and you're not relying on
1: gravity to drop the head but yeah yeah There seems to be a lot of tricks in grinding and that's what i'm learning the more time i spend um and adam and i have been sort of talking about maybe doing a podcast talking about grinding but adam's very cagey about letting his trade secrets <laughs> go through well that's a total lie
0: <laughs> uh, a lot of grinding is actually specific down to the very machine. Um, yeah. And, you know, even like the same machine, I'm sure this brand new Parker I have is going to grind very differently than my old Parker mm. just because of how much stiffer the spindle bearings are on a brand new spindle. Um, stuff mm. like that. And so, you know, what you find works well on one machine isn't necessarily the gospel for how another machine is going to run. And so a, a lot of grinding is trying things and figuring out what works and mm. there is mathematical ways to figuring out how to run a wheel um mm. you you know we can get into all of that when we do this but um a lot of people say grinding is an art but it's actually very much so a science um just done by artful
1: people i should clarify adam's not cagey at all and you can see that via his instagram of all the people that i follow the instagram i think he's the most free with all the information that he learns. And um, uh, I think we can all thank you for that, Adam, all the Insta machinists out there. You've definitely given us uh, a lot to envy.
0: Well, what Um, what I'm discovering is not a lot of people actually grind. Um, You know, I always get a lot of responses and curiosities, but um, it's it's something not a lot of people are
1: familiar with. So I'm happy to share. Mm. Speaking of um, things you share on your Instagram... Uh, you had some parts roll through that uh, you wanted to talk about for your actual pre- precision oh, problem.
0: Yeah, uh, another grinding problem. I've been doing a lot of die shoes, um, and these are uh, kind of an antiquated style of die manufacturing. Instead of the typical multiple plates stacked on top of one another and located via dowels, these die shoes use something called bunter bars, which is B U N T E R and it's an old-timey way of doing things where you have a slot ground down the middle of the die and it's very very precise like plus two microns minus nothing on the slot width and same on depth and then you arrange all your carbide die sections into that slot and then you have clamps on the end preloading them um, and what's so great about this, and the reason you still see it in use, is if you're putting a lot of side load on these carbide dissections, like something that could potentially crack them, say you're drawing a heavy gauge of material into them, you're because you're preloading it on the ends and it's press fit into the slot, you're, you're fully supporting that carbide and it greatly reduces the risk of cracking. Um, and so it, it still has a lot of application in that regard. Uh, but they're a little tricky to manufacture because you're using the length of the die and the form of that slot and then the ends to not only load them but accurately locate them. The, these large die shoes have to be extremely square and parallel on all three sides or six sides, I guess, if you want to look at it. Um, so the biggest I did was 200 by 300 by 50 and then the rest were 200 by 200 by 50 um and I did quite a few of these and I I pretty much got all of them square within a tenth one I was a flyer I I had enough material I could go back through and and uh get it back into a tenth by removing a little off of one side and still keep the the length dimension and tolerance Um, And I I did that without a fixture with a technique called uh, step squaring. And some people call it grinding on a shim. And that's a little easier way to visualize what's happening. But basically, as you set the block on the granite, if you think, if I had a 5-micron shim under this side, it would tip it enough to be square. Well, Mm. a 5-micron shim isn't really practical to use. uh, So you do the opposite. You remove 5 microns from everywhere but that little ledge and now it tips over into being square um and there's a pretty exact procedure where you grind everything parallel as a parallelogram not necessarily a square block and then you measure your how far out of square you are and you apply that squareness per inch or squareness per centimeter and make your corrections and um it, it all works pretty darn accurately um and so i was was not something i've had to do for a while and i was really kind of tickled to to uh dust it off so to speak and have it work so well
1: any precision problems for you other than marriage and new machine towards the end of november we had a couple of parts roll through from uh, the university of sydney that were rush parts and um i don't really specialize in job shop work about 15% of our work is external the rest is internal and uh, we needed a way to manufacture these parts really quickly and they're all one-offs and the most efficient way I found to make these parts and to program them quickly and efficiently and there was a lot of time pressure on, on um, delivering these guys was to make them out of round bar in the 5-axis on the Kern, holding them on a stepped-down portion um, in an ER collet. So, for example, it was uh, we have an ER32 to EROA-50 holder. So it's an EROA interface with an ER32 on the end. And the maximum diameter that you can hold with ER32 um, with standard collets is 20 millimeters in round bar. But a lot of these parts had to be made from round bar that was maybe 30, 40, even 100 millimeters in diameter. And instead of clamping it in a vice that would um, limit your uh, the spindle to centerline um, reach, in certain orientations, if you can think of like a self-centering vice on two sides of that vice um, at something like B90 or A90, you wouldn't be able to reach the spindle straight down with um, standard reach tooling or even standard reach holders. With this um, method of stepping down a blank to 20 millimeters in, you know, in a OP zero and holding it with this ER method, um, you had even reach all the way around the uh, circumference of the part. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that's something I I struggle with on my fourth axis when I use the chuck on it versus my vice, is like the big body of a 6-inch or 150-millimeter chuck uh, doesn't really do you any favors when you're working on, you know, 20-millimeter
1: rod or something. Exactly right. That's exactly right. So a lot of the features, for example, of these parts, um, you know, would would end up right at the center center line of the part and so even though the part's quite large in reference to those features um you had to get down right in there and uh so that that was one part and the other part of the problem was that um round bar was all i had lying around and it was all i had that was um deliverable within the time frame uh of of when these part needs parts needed to be completed so I ended up doing an op zero on all these uh, parts and most of them were out of aluminum, which was really handy. And two of them were out of brass, which was just as nice. Uh, but the issue that you come into really quickly uh, and you realize really quickly is that um, you have a massive overhang.
0: <laughs> yeah, those, very uh, little support.
1: those looked pretty cantilevered
0: when I saw them. Absolutely. <laughs> and when you think... Your fifth axis isn't exactly what I'd call robust on that machine. It's, you know, meant for small, intricate work. And and
1: you had, you know, h- half a foot of leverage. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. That fifth axis is really designed... And there's so many things, not wrong, but ill-suited for this sort of work. The kinematic point is actually within the fifth axis. It's not above it, which um, if you looked at something like a... Uh, a Micron HSM-400 or something like that, or even the 200 series, the kinematic point is uh, above the Arowa interface. In my um, fifth axis or trunnion, it's within the, um, the Arowa interface, which doesn't do you any favors because any overhang that you have actually suffers um, from the curse of being further away uh on an angular offset so long story short we had this huge overhang that you generate with these you know quite large parts um often if you think about the drawbar of a rower system it's about i want to say like maybe 60 or 70 millimeters long and we had uh close to 250 millimeters hanging out the other end so you've got a lot of mechanical advantage um on the on the uh, cutting force side so the one thing I found that was really really helpful was and and thankfully we we're using aluminium for a lot of these parts was really sharp tools um, very very high uh, uh, surface speeds and uh, light cuts so all the things that sort of seem obvious except for the surface speed um, I found that as soon as I approached surface speeds of about 700 meters a minute and higher, um, the cutting force in the axial direction of the tool reduced significantly. So I could hold a taper along the part. If you think of this part sort of sticking out and um, let's say it's like a rectangle, uh, rectangular prism, the parallelism between the two sides, so really you're measuring the thickness along this prism, um, i could hold it quite reliably within 2 micron and that was only achieved by increasing the surface speed light cuts and um the other one <laughs> yeah i was uh
0: i was surprised you got away with it as well as you did um in terms of parallelism um, it
1: it was quite hung out and yeah it seemed to work for you though long story short though never going to do that again nah. it was too much stress <laughs> So those were our precision problems. Um, Thank you for bearing with us in this sort of uh, slightly more touch and go time. But we really appreciate your support and all the messages that rolled through asking sort of jovially, sort of tongue in cheek, where's the podcast? Um, It actually makes us want to do it more. So thank you.
0: Thank you for listening and making it to the end of our 10th episode of the microcast. For our next episode, Josh and I will be talking about our new grinder purchases and setup, operation, and grinding parameters that go with tool room style grinding. If there's anything specific you'd like us to talk about, get in contact with either of us through Instagram and we'd be happy to bring it up.